even for us who've worked in the sport for a long time, we would get to know them as people, but you never really got to see them in the moment because it was always behind a closed door. That was really the moment that, that we realised that this show was sort of becoming slightly bigger than just, you know, a show on Netflix that a lot of people were watching, that it was having this huge impact on the sport and, and has had huge impacts on other sports. But I think linking them to the pop culture moment is expanding the conversation and it's the sport would be so dull without it. I'm Krista Smith and you're listening to Behind the Wheel, a Drive to Survive miniseries. Welcome back to the final installment of our skip intro series on Formula One, Drive to Survive. I loved hearing from all the people who make the show one of the best sports documentaries around. Their inside knowledge has offered a fascinating glimpse into the captivating stories that inspire and excite millions. Today, we're going to explore the impact of Drive to Survive on the sport with our trusted authority, Will Buxton, who has witnessed the transformation firsthand. But first, let's hear from some new voices. Kate Lazat and Nicole Seavers are the hosts of Two Girls, One Formula a podcast and community of F1 fans who love the fashion and gossip as much as the regulations and race pace. TG1F has been written up in The New Yorker as one of the best podcasts on the sport, and we're thrilled to have their expertise on all things F1 fandom. I'm Nicole. And my name is Kate. I got into Formula One because I had an ex-boyfriend who was really into Formula One, Kate and I have been friends for eight, ten years? Like, how long? Something so like long, <laughs> a long time at this point. And my ex-boyfriend was really into it. I was like, eh, cars going fast, this is so lame, whatever. Not really my speed. But as we got more serious, it started to be every single weekend. And I was like, well, if this is going to be the rest of my life, I might as well start to be invested in it. I started seeing videos of Daniel Ricardo, and I was like, okay. He's cute, he's funny. If I'm gonna root for anyone in Formula One, then that's my guy. Daniel, here. How do you feel being the funniest driver on the grid? <laughs> um, I'm, I thank you, I am very funny, I agree. Uh, also very good looking. Um, I worked on that for a long time. Uh, but without surgery, just with age. Like fine wine, like it, French wine. Nose maybe, Daniel. <laughs> He seems to take himself not too seriously and like from what I've gleaned from the sport already it seems pretty pretentious at some time so like I feel like he really took the edge off and made it more accessible for me to like want to get involved. Fast forward a couple of years, Kate and her now fiance are living next door to my boyfriend and I at the time and we have convinced them to come over for the Austin Grand Prix because we're like, hey, it's on at a reasonable time. I'm cooking some food, we're having some drinks. It's a, it's a casual Sunday, just come over and watch it. From there, we continued to watch with Nicole and then Drive to Survive came out and that was the first season I was hooked. Like, I had already known, had some background, but then with Drive to Survive, it just amped it up to that next level. So, you know, learning the ins and the outs and the main characters and the drama and the politics and what was going on behind the scenes really piqued my curiosity because I traditionally don't love sports. Like, I'm not a sports person, per se, but I love 
relationships and storytelling and personalities. So learning about that was what really hooked me in. Yeah, you know, it, there had been a couple seasons mm -hmm. out at that point, but it hadn't really hit its peak of of fans and people who were watching. And so the online community was very much people that had been watching Formula One for years. It was people who cared about the history, the stats, the drivers, the, the cars, more of the data behind the sport and the historical significance of it. And I think one of the things, and I don't think it's even just the Formula One online community, but it's hard to learn, feel comfortable wanting to learn about things online. It's a lot of people saying, you should already know that, or you're not a real fan if you don't know this. Mm -hmm. And for us, we were just going into it from the perspective we want to learn. And we're also trying to have a conversation about the, what Daniel Riccardo uses in his hair. Why is his <laughs> hair like so luscious? <laughs> what curling products does he use? It's incredible. Why are they all so tan all the time? Do they go tanning? How many drivers on the grid get their eyebrows done? I have to know these yeah. things. And for us, it was really hard to find a space where we were not ridiculed for that and mm -hmm. we were not shamed or put down or looked down upon. And I think that almost was kicked up a notch once Drive to Survive hit its peak because then you kind of had two opposing sides of the fandom. Yeah. It was the people who were fans before and the people who came in from Drive to Survive. When we started Two Girls, we did Two Girls because we kind of wanted to be anonymous because we were like, I don't think people, especially men in the in the community, are going to take us like super seriously. And so we were like, all right, well, if we don't show our faces, you know, we can be kind of whoever we want to be and be anonymous about it. We tried to make content that kind of fit in with the traditional content that we had been seeing, like kind of male focused memes. And it just like was horrible and we hated it and it just didn't do well for us. And so we said, all right, you know what? Screw this. We're going, as you know, Danny likes to say, like the stamp and send it. We're coming out, it's Kate and Nicole, we're the two girls, here's what we believe in and like here's, we're gonna be authentically ourselves. And it really seemed to resonate with people. And kind of naturally out of that, Two Girls, One Formula was born and it was just a place for us to connect with other you know, younger women who enjoy the sport and maybe didn't feel like they had a place in the fandom to be the types of fans that they wanted to be and talk about how cute the drivers are, you know, gossip about, you know, the politics and the drama and be interested in what the drivers' wives and girlfriends were wearing or doing on the side, but also caring about the sport. It's kind of, you know, there's a large part of the community that's like, you have to be one or the other. Mm -hmm. And so uh, for us, it just ended up being a place where we met a lot of people in the same kind of wavelength as us. And yeah, that's, that's kind of where Two Girls is today. It's just a really fun community for us to connect with people uh, around the world who share our same interests. Yeah. Online and in-person communities similar to TG1F are popping up with more frequency as the fans around the sport evolve and a new crowd is drawn in. As Kate and Nicole say, the personality of the drivers and those in the paddock are just as enticing as the high-octane sport itself. This new fan base and the attention that Drive to Survive has brought to F1 have led to moments where pop culture and the sport meet. We love how ingrained Formula One is in pop culture. Even in the past couple of years, we've seen 
Cardi B's mentioning Formula One, Nicki Minaj mentioning Formula One in their in their songs. It's kind of just a very fun time to see that that pop culture touch points. I think it's fun, especially lately, to see how much popular media mm-hmm. is taking an interest in Formula One and how Formula One drivers are really being seen as a canvas for designers mm-hmm. and for fashion moments. I think, especially here in America, we see that a lot with athletes. We yeah. see, you know, the NFL that you always see athletes arriving in the, you know, their game day best and they're, you know, sporting new designers and people they love. We see it with hockey. We see it with basketball. We see it with all these sports. So it's really fun to see Formula One doing that too. Just Lewis Hamilton is such a freaking icon mm-hmm. that he is the pop culture link yeah. that Formula One needed for so long. Formula One has changed my life, you know, it's given me a a purpose, it's given me this opportunity. As a kid, my dream was to be here, was to be right here in front of you all, and um, I love what I do. I'm not stopping, I'm going to keep fighting, and uh, thank you so much, I love you guys. He has established himself in the pop culture world and the celebrity world so much that he now is buying full tables at the Met Gala to be able to bring young up and coming black designers to give them, you know, a spotlight. It's like he is, I think, the number one pop culture tie for for F1. And it's like the best thing we could have asked for. Hamilton has long reigned as the pop culture king of Formula One. He's appeared on late night talk shows, sat in the front row at Fashion Week next to Zendaya, and has even launched a film and television production company, Dawn Apollo Films. He was supposed to have a role in Top Gun Maverick, but shooting conflicted with the Formula One season, so he had to step away. Though we didn't get to see him in a fighter jet, Lewis isn't staying away from Hollywood. He is currently working with none other than Brad Pitt on a film about Formula One. Pitt is far from the first celebrity to have an interest in the sport. The glamorous Monaco Grand Prix has long attracted Hollywood stars. Now, with more races happening on American soil, the celebrity interest in the sport is growing. Keanu Reeves has recently been spotted at several races as he works on a documentary about the 2009 F1 season. Harry Styles has been seen wearing Daniel Ricciardo's merch, and the former First Lady Michelle Obama even made a trip to the paddock. During the 2022 Miami Grand Prix, a photo surfaced online of what felt like the Mount Rushmore of sports, with David Beckham, Michael Jordan, Tom Brady, and Lewis Hamilton posing together in the pit lane. Much of the fervor comes from Drive to Survive opening up the drivers' lives to the world, as Kate and Nicole have witnessed. We've seen with the introduction of and the increase in Drive to Survive, prior to Liberty Media, drivers using social media was kind of frowned upon. They were supposed to show up and drive fast, and basically that was it. You weren't supposed to know anything outside of their personal lives. But clearly, using social media and building a personal brand and and showcasing that is very lucrative for not only the teams, but Formula One as a whole. Who is doing the guacamole? I'm doing the guacamole, mate. You know, for guacamole, you need lime. Ready? Where's the fajita mixed? It's not here. I'm going to be depressed. It has to be here. Excuse me. We have a special fajita sauce, El Paso style. He's really, really keen on. Here we go, mate. You have it? I'm sorry to break this to you. They might only have their own brand. Then we need to go somewhere else. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. Nice to meet you. 
loosening the reins on the drivers, I think, has been huge for the cultural shift and allowing them to be people and, you know, go partner with some of the other sports, as we've seen recently with the NBA in France and like Charles and Pierre showing up and playing basketball with the Chicago Bulls players. We have to talk about how much American like outlets love Formula One because there's Vanity Fair, there's GQ. GQ loves, GQ loves. F1 right now. <laughs> Everyone is getting interviewed for GQ. Everyone's getting their spotlight. I think it was Vanity Fair, the shoot with Danny, George, Pierre, and Esteban. And Lando. And Lando. My mind was blown that day. For like the younger female fans especially, we're like, this is incredible. We love that they get to be playful with their jobs and they get exposure to different audiences. It's really fun to see kind of a softer side to them outside of the like peak performance athletes that they are, which they are. But I think linking them to the pop culture moment is expanding the conversation and it's the sport would be so dull without it. It's not just drivers getting the celebrity treatment. The team principals have amassed huge fan followings. But when you get Drive to Survive, you get to know people you wouldn't otherwise. So I think the best example is Gunther Steiner, the team principal of Haas. No one would probably pay that much attention to Haas. They don't consistently get great results. Their drivers are never, you know, the big newsworthy names until the past few years when they had Mick Schumacher, who, you know, in his own right is a character related to his dad, who is arguably the greatest F1 driver of all time. But Gunther is someone you would never really know about. And then you watch the show and he's the star. (laughs) That's the star of the show. He's hysterical. He does not hold back. He swears. He is loud. He's funny. He really doesn't care who is around. He's going to say what he thinks. And he is, he's not playing the politics game. Honestly, it's, it's interesting, right? Because the first season of Drive to Survive, Mercedes and Ferrari noticeably sat out. And they said, we're not going to be part of this silly show. And what happened season two? They were front and center. Because they realized how good of a branding and marketing opportunity it was for them to get in front of these new fans. And so, you know, they they said, all right, we'll play the game and we'll be these characters in these shows. But it's funny because, you know, especially... In the new season, right, we see Gene talking to Gunther, and he's like, Gunther, go see your fans. Meet your fans, Gunther. Would you, you know, five, six years ago, expect the team principals of these teams to be, like, absolute celebrities in their own right, where you'd be like, oh my god, I can't believe I saw Gunther Steiner on the street today. What? Are you joking? Will Buxton has thought about what it is that makes the team principals just as intriguing as the athletes. You know, some of the best storylines in the series aren't necessarily about the drivers. It's about the, the team bosses and the stresses that they go through. The, they're running companies of thousands of people. The drivers are just two of those people. Yes, they're the most visible and have the most international focus on them. But they are just two of a thousand employees that they have to look after. And every decision that that team principal makes ultimately affects every single one of those employees. It's one of the most high pressure jobs, Um, you know, not just in Formula One, but in global sport. And so to get more of an insight into them, what makes them tick, how they make their decisions, and then how they react with one another has been one of the great parts of this series to open up these people who 
weren't really that well known in terms of how they operated, why they worked the way they did and why they made the decisions that they do. So, you know, even for us who've worked in the sport for a long time, we would get to to know them as people, but you never really got to see them in the moment because it was always behind a, a closed door. Getting that awareness, getting that insight and say even for us who are involved in the sport, this series has taken us to places and, and put us in situations which unless we were employed by the teams and been in those debriefs, we've we've never seen those moments. I don't think the team bosses ever expected that they would have a following. I don't think they ever expected that, you know, people would recognise them and be clamouring for their autographs in the same vein as the drivers. Okay, if you are the boss of Ferrari, that's slightly different because you are lauded and deified so long as you bring success uh, in Italy. But there are very few team bosses in the history of the sport that existed as these scions outside of the sport. Enzo Ferrari, yes. But even Frank Williams, Ron Dennis, Colin Chapman, yeah, they were famous within the sport and they were famous maybe within sporting circles, but if you saw them on the street, the public likely wouldn't know who they were. Now you see a Christian Horner, a Toto Wolf, Gunther Steiner, Otmar Safnauer, doesn't matter who they are, Zach Brown. If you've seen Drive to Survive, you know who these guys are. And when we leave the circuits and the fans are, you know, waiting for autographs or waiting at hotels for autographs, they are as excited to see the team bosses as they are to see the drivers. Which I know for the team bosses is wild. Um... <laughs> I think for the drivers, it's possibly even wilder because they're like, hold on, this is supposed to be for me. <laughs> um, but it's, I mean, that's, again, it's, you know, the, 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 the celebrity that it has, has created, the fervor that it's created. The star power has opened up a space for a whole new world of fans to enjoy Formula One. I've always considered Formula One to be an inclusive sport because it didn't matter where you came from or who you supported when you attended a race you you would cheer and move for 18th place like you would cheer and move for first place there was a sort of a, a democracy to it it's unlike football or any other major sport in that it's not just two teams and you don't become tribal in that it's us versus you there was a a mutual respect whether you were you know at the british grand prix and you were there supporting michael schumacher or whoever you know that there, there was a a common bond that you all loved this thing that was quite niche and you you had that you know formula 1 was your bond now that it's getting a lot bigger there is a little bit of that that's kind of tribalism cutting in a bit mostly on races where it's 90% one driver's home turf you 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 there's a, an element of tribalism but i still hope and from you know the majority of what i've seen it, it's still a place where you can go and enjoy and have fun and, you know, you see parents and kids and you have your your old school fans who are there in, you know, team kit from the 70s and 80s and you sort of, re oh, I, re I recognise that sponsor and I remember that team shirt, that you know, all that kind of stuff. But then you also have new fans who have been brought in and who are loving it and who are at a race for the first time. The number of people that you meet now at a Grand Prix who say, this is my first race is astounding and and... That's really very evident in, in the United States. Welcome to Miami. 
the first ever Formula One Grand Prix to be held in the spectacular metropolitan area of Miami in Florida. Formula One in America has really boomed, and mm -hmm. I think a large part of that initially was Drive to Survive, and even prior to Drive to Survive was its acquisition by an American PE firm with the goal make Formula One popular in the U.S. We need more American fans. Americans are very famous for loving sports and being willing to spend money. So <laughs> especially on, we love, we have a huge celebrity culture, an athlete culture. So it just goes to show that, and makes sense that if Formula One wants to make more money and get more fans, have more sponsors, America is the place that you have to be because we are very willing to spend that money to kind of achieve those goals that they had Let's give them a reality TV type docu-series. Americans love drama. That's why we have so many reality TV shows. We love to watch people's personal lives unfold. It just really made sense to take Formula One and put it in more of a narrative format and tell the stories of drivers. You know, you only see so much if you watch the races. Even watching Media Day and interviews, you're getting very... PR driven answers, mm -hmm. you're getting media training, you're getting, you know, these are the messaging points that we need to get across in these interviews. Don't give anything more because we don't want anything else out there. So to be able to take a peek behind the curtain, I think is interesting to anyone, but especially in the US, those are the type of stories we really latch onto. So it's like no surprise that it's gotten so popular here. And I think because of the popularity of that, we've seen exactly what America's famous for. People are buying tickets to race is people are spending lots of money on those tickets to those races so for better or for worse for better or for worse so what do we have originally we just had austin, austin there, have Texas. Been, uh, there have been other tracks throughout the history of formula one in the united states but as of you know in the past decade Ten, yeah austin was really the only one and then obviously we had montreal and mexico city which also in north america but austin was really the only u.s track people weren't coming from Europe to come to Austin because they had their own races in Europe that were closer to their backyard they could go to. So it was really the American fans would go to Austin and there weren't that many of them. So it was pretty inexpensive to go. There was always tickets available. It's a great track. So really great racing to see. It was a really good one. And then we got the increase. And so what did we do? Let's pick out one of the most expensive cities <laughs> that we can do something with celebrities with a fake yacht marina like what can we do to just make this extravagant and wealthy the most americanized yeah. version of a formula one race so we've got the glam <laughs> yeah. the glitterati as christian likes to say so we go to miami and we get a race that is being touted as the monaco of north america for the race miami is not similar to Monaco. I will say that there's no way that you can ever convince me that those are similar, but they tried to make the track really abundantly American mm -hmm. and there was champagne everywhere. There were palm trees. There are so many celebrities there. There's concerts going on. Post Malone is performing during the entire race. There's a beach club. There's a yacht marine. There's fake yachts in a, in a cardboard marine. It was insane. And so we saw prices go so high for that and it still sold out immediately. And then as of this year, we now have a third race in the U.S., which is in 
if a possible more expensive place, <laughs> Las Vegas. And so now more we're expensive seeing, and more American. More expensive, <laughs> more American. Racing is the same as gambling. You have more bad days than good days. Good days, yeah. That's the finish line. Wild. We'll be driving well over 200 miles an hour down the strip. It's just going to be absolutely crazy. Let me say what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. <laughs> We're excited that we get three races here. The sport is constantly evolving. It's constantly changing. Do I think there is a immediate threat of this becoming an all-American sport and it's the next NASCAR and, you know, it's the people in Europe are, are threatened by it? No, I don't think that that is necessarily going to be the case. But uh, it has been exciting to see, you know, you can go to a bar and tell someone that you're into Formula One and they've likely watched Perfect. a race. They've heard about it. They, <laughs> they know the gist. Whereas, you know, five, six years ago, you they'd be like, what? Hmm? So the American market is, is growing and, and expanding and it's it's an exciting time. Buxton, who spends the year traveling the F1 circuit, but is based in the UK, has seen the increase in popularity in his home country, too. Three quarters of the teams are based in the UK. And I haven't seen people talking about Formula One this much, probably since the late 80s, early 90s. You know, it's become a topic of conversation on the streets again. You go to the to your barber shop and you tell them, you know, you're getting your hair cut. Oh, you know, so where are you off to this week? What are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm off to Bahrain. Oh, what are you doing there? Formula One's there this week, isn't it? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then and then they're like, you start talking about F1. You never would have done that before. Like, oh, I'm not interested in Formula One. I like football. You know, but but now it's back. It's a topic of conversation. And Drive to Survive has been, it's been such a huge part of that. It's been quite a journey from the idea that there might be a new frontier for sports documentaries to the explosion of the series over the pandemic, to the exciting opportunities that lie ahead for Formula One in America and beyond. Thank you to all our guests for walking us through what we here at Q call the story behind the story. If you haven't yet watched Drive to Survive, there are five fantastic seasons waiting for you on Netflix. Who knows, you might find yourself heading to the Las Vegas Grand Prix, getting a taste of the action live. For now, we'll leave you with some reflections from F1 Drive to Survive producers, James Gay Reese and Paul Martin. We were certainly trying to reach out to, you know, above and beyond the, you know, the, the, the traditional Formula One fan base because, you know, that was shrinking. The whole purpose of the exercise was to find a new audience, basically. I mean, not for us, but for the, for the sport itself. Because it was for Netflix and because, you know, of the people involved, I think we just made the show we felt was right, first and foremost, for Netflix, you know, and it just happened to really connect with an audience. We weren't necessarily making it for diehard Formula One fans. If they come to it, then fantastic. But they've got other avenues as well. And, you know, it was meant to be an accessible show and because we everything we do, we want to make really good things that do also find an audience. We don't want to, you know, you want to basically have your cake and eat it and make award-winning stuff that also is massively popular. And that's what's happened here. And it's, you know, it's incredibly gratifying that it has landed in that way. But we couldn't have foreseen that it was going to do that. You know, I think it's sort of gone way beyond anybody's expectations, I think, probably. I always thought that to get, to have one or two proper hits in your life, that's good enough for any producer. Do you know what I mean? Because most producers go through their life never having that. So to have a couple is just, you know, it's incredibly rewarding. 
I think when season one came out, it was clear that people were watching it, which was great. But I, for me, the, the realization that there was something bigger going on. I think when the tickets went on sale for the Austin Grand Prix and the year after the first season came out, he just they had record numbers of people applying for tickets. You know, their data was showing them that it, there was a lot of females coming to the sport for the first time ever. And I think that was pretty remarkable. And I think when James and I got down to Austin, you could sense that, that it was just different. You know, there was just more people, you know, they were more excited than, than perhaps they'd been sort of in previous years. And I think for me, that was really the moment that, that we realized that this show was sort of becoming slightly bigger than just, you know, a show on Netflix that a lot of people were watching, that it was having this huge impact on the sport and, and has had huge impacts on other sports, you know. It's very strange to think of those sort of early conversations around this show and what it's become and the importance that it has, you know, in the world of Formula One, but also in the world of sport. It's pretty unique. Behind the Wheel, a skip intro miniseries, was produced and edited by Isabel Riccio, Maddie Saff, and engineered by Dave Corwin. Special thanks to Will Buxton, James Gay Reese, Paul Martin, Martin Webb, Jean-Louis Schuller, and Kate Lazat and Nicole Sievers. Mm-hmm.